0: you would please turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 24. So Will did a great job quoting one of the verses that we'll be looking at tonight, Joshua chapter 24. I want to begin by talking about Randy Pausch. Uh, Some of you may have heard his name before. He was a professor of computer science, human-computer interaction, and design at Carnegie Mellon University. He was a very accomplished professor, writing many books and articles, and was actually pretty well known in his field. Uh, He was married, had three young children, ages five and under, so he had his hands full. Uh, When at the age of 46... He was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And uh, from your reaction, I, you all know uh, what that normally means. Uh, he was told that he had three to six months of good health to live. What would you do if that was you? What would you do if this week you heard from the doctor that you had three to six months of good health to live? What would you do? What would you say? Well, Randy Pausch decided he wanted to give what was called the last lecture. And this title wasn't unique to him. Other, other professors and, and people had uh, done this before, and they would give a talk about what really matters to them in life and give a, a hypothetical final talk. However, for Randy, this was indeed his last lecture. And so he gave his lecture the title, Really Achieving Your Childhood Dreams. And he, he started by giving the list of his childhood dreams that he had. And uh, through a series of slideshow uh, slides, he went through and shared photos of his life and shared how he had really accomplished most of his childhood dreams. A primary goal, although not, not stated until the end of his lecture, was to have a recording of his talk for his children who were young enough that they probably wouldn't be able to remember uh, their dad and what was really important to him in his life. And so Randy, Randy Posh gave this last lecture on September 18th, 2007, and on September 25th, I'm sorry, and July 25th, 2008, at 47 years old, just 10 months later he passed away. Now, I've watched the last lecture and He's never mentioned Jesus or having faith in God. And so if you get a chance to, to look at that or read his book, you'll notice that it's, it's normally not uh, surprisingly uh, very irreligious in uh, his goals and what he talks about. But if you were in Randy Posh's shoes, if you were told that you had only months to live, what would you say to, to your children who, for him, were too young to probably remember very much about him? What life lessons would you want to communicate in this talk? What would you say to the rest of your family, your, your friends, your co-workers, if you knew that your life was about to end? Well, if you're, if you're married, you might challenge your children to, to love their spouses, realizing how important that is and how critical that is to, to your relationship. Uh, if you're a father, you might challenge your children to, to work hard every day and to realize how important that is in, in your life. If, if you're an athlete, you might share the benefits that uh, athletics can give from being and participating in athletics. If you're a mom, you might share how precious your family is and how you should use, utilize that time with your family. It's an interesting and really a sobering thought to consider what you would say if you knew that your life would end soon. And whether you read the book about Randy Posh, it's just a little, small book, you can read it really in an afternoon, or whether you watch it on YouTube, it takes about an hour and ten minutes if I remember right, Uh, it's very interesting. Not only to hear what he chose to communicate and record for his children to watch someday, so that they would know who he was, but also what he chose to communicate to the hundreds that were present that day, and now the 20-plus million people that have watched it on YouTube. And so tonight we're going to be looking at a, a last lecture of sorts for us here in Joshua 24. Joshua, now more than 100 years old, is giving his last talk, his, his final challenge to his children, his family, to God's people as a whole. And here we have the opportunity to hear what Joshua, man, God's man, had to say. A well-known patriarch, the leader of Israel, inspired by God, what he chose to communicate to his family as well as all of Israel at the end of his life. Now, interestingly, Joshua isn't the only one to give a, a final challenge in the Bible, uh, a last lecture of sorts. Uh, Moses, in Deuteronomy 31-33, gave uh, a last final, kind of last lecture. Uh, Paul Many people view Second Timothy as his last lecture. And Jesus, in John 13-17, through 17, many view those, those chapters as, as Jesus' final lecture to his disciples. But what would you be saying to your children, friends, family, co-workers, if you were giving your last lecture? If you had one final message to give to people, what, what would that be? Well, let's look together at Joshua 24 to see what Joshua had to say. He begins in verse 1 of chapter 24 and begins, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the, the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel and they presented themselves before God. And so so Joshua gets everyone together, all the tribes of Israel. They're together at, at Shechem and then, and then he gets all the leaders and he gets them together and then probably brought them to the front, and then they presented themselves to God. It would be like if we got here, if we got all Faith Baptist Church all together one day, and we chose, then we got all the Sunday school teachers next, and we said, okay, all Sunday school teachers come forward, and all the small group leaders, you, you, come, you come forward now too, and, and all the deacons, you come, you come forward, and then you get the, uh, the pastors, and we put Pastor Walker right up front, and we all present ourselves before God. He did this at Shechem, which, by the way, is uh, if you look on the map, it's it's straight north up from Jerusalem. It's a very significant place in in Scripture. Uh, Genesis 12, 6, and 7 is where God first promised the land to Abraham. In Genesis 33, verse 20, we see that that's where Jacob first built an altar. Uh, It was the first capital of the northern kingdom. It's, It's located at a major crossroads. And in Genesis 37, it's near where Jacob's sons watched their flocks, where Jacob sent Joseph to go find his brothers, and where they eventually threw him in a pit to sell him. And here we see in Joshua 24, at the end of the chapter, verse 32, it's where the bones of Joseph eventually were buried. So Shechem is a very significant place, loaded with history. And so this is the place that Joshua called all Israel together to hear his final challenge. And so he begins with a, a history lesson in verse 2, and he says, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Now Joshua is speaking for God here, and, and he goes way back, goes way back to Abraham's father Terah, who lived in Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iraq. And he says, you're great, 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 great. You get the idea. The heads of your families. And he names Terah, Abraham's father. He says, they worshipped other gods. They worshipped idols. And actually, Joshua says they served other gods. The word word serve is significant in this passage. If you notice, in this passage where Joshua is challenging the people of Israel about who they're going to worship, he uses the word translated serve nine times in this chapter. In verse 2, three times in verse 14, four times in verse 15, and again in verse 31. And that's because the words serve and worship are almost interchangeable. Because what we serve, we, I'm sorry, we serve what we worship, and we worship what we serve. But Joshua continues in verse 3 and he says, Again, speaking for God, then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Sair to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, and I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. You took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went out over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat of the fruit of the vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. So Joshua gives a brief history of what God has done for the children of Israel. and starts with Abraham, whose father was an idolater in Mesopotamia, and he recounts for all of Israel God's goodness to them. How he chose them, how he loved them, how he brought them out, performing incredible miracles after miracle. He led them, freed them from the Egyptians, led them further, gave them victory over all of the ites all the peoples, and finally reminds them in verse 13 that he brought them to a place that was move-in ready. It was turnkey. It was fully furnished. They didn't have to build houses. They didn't have to build cities. They didn't have to plow fields or plant crops. It was all there. They just walked right in and enjoyed. It would be on a much, like on a much, much smaller scale if, if God told us, Faith Baptist Church, I'm going to move you to another township provide you with a church building with a big auditorium, a spacious parking lot with plenty of spots for every car, lots of classrooms for every small group, Sunday school, nursery rooms, a large fellowship hall nice enough for the nicest wedding, and a whole separate wing for a big Christian school with a large gym with multiple courts, a large soccer field, baseball field, soccer field, on and on you could go on describing it. And you don't have to pay anything for it. You don't have to go meet with the township You just have to walk in and it's yours. That would be incredible, right? That's a small taste of what God did for the Israelites. And Joshua continues with his challenge in verses 14 and 15 and says, Now therefore, in other words, based upon everything that God has done, he recounted in verses 2 through 13, because of everything that God has done for you and all of Israel collectively, he says, fear the Lord And serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, We will serve the Lord. Joshua commands them to fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity, completely, wholly, blamelessly, and in faithfulness. And then he commands them to to put off, kind of like the the New Testament, put off and put on. He says, put away the old gods that your fathers served. And the second time he says, and serve the Lord. And verse 15 is interesting to me. It says, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord... Well, other Bible versions translate it, if, if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, or but if it, if, but if it doesn't please you to worship the Lord, or, or but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you. In other words, if serving God isn't your top choice, he says, well then choose this day who you are going to serve. It's, you've probably seen the, uh, the scene in the movies. The leader, they're getting ready to, to take over the fort, or defend their fort, and he, he draws a line in the sand. He says, everybody that wants to stay with me and defend the fort, what, step over the line. And if, if you want to leave, well, then you stay on that side of the line. And that's what, that's what Joshua does. Joshua draws a line, and he says, it's time to declare who you're really going to worship. Whom you are going to serve. Who or what is going to be your master. Because the bottom line, Joshua recognize that everyone worships and serves something or someone. Everyone. Even the atheist who says they don't believe in God, they worship. Usually it's themselves and it's their own thinking that they've elevated above what the Bible says. But Joshua knew very well the history of God's people and their constant struggle from the very beginning of choosing to worship idols instead of the true God. And so he challenges them to choose today whom they were going to commit to serving. And he says, whether it's the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. Before God called Abraham, he says, his family worshiped idols. And every nation that they were surrounded by, including the land that they were in right now, worshiped idols. And throughout the whole Old Testament, we see the history of God's people struggling to choose to worship idols instead of God. But thankfully, idol worship was only a problem for God's people in the Old Testament. No. Sorry, that's not true. In fact, idolatry was and remains to this day one of the great dangers to believers. In fact, if you recall the number one commandment of the Ten Commandments found in Exodus 20, verse 2, it says, You shall have what? No other gods before me. And he goes on in the Second Commandments, very similar, in verses 4 and 6, and says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Many people who are familiar with the Ten Commandments, even non-believers are familiar with the Ten Commandments, many of them, are quite relieved knowing that there's no statues in their home, there's none in their gardens. They say, you won't find me bowing down to any statues anywhere, anytime, so I'm clear. I'm so thankful I don't have to worry about being an idolater because I don't have any statues at my house. However, I think there's, there's three ways that people commit idolatry today. And one is the most familiar, and that is by, by worshipping another god. If you've ever done a, a study or look around at world religions, you'll, you'll quickly see that there are literally thousands of different gods that have, have been and are currently worshipped in our world today. Uh, and some people grow up in a culture, uh, especially cultures in, in the Middle East, And they know nothing else besides worshipping the sun or the moon or this statue or that statue. So that's one way that people commit idolatry today. Uh, Second is by reinventing or redefining God. Choosing not to believe what the Bible says about God, but, but rather reshaping God to be a God of their own making. Now those of us who hold firmly to our belief in God... And what the Bible says might find this hard, hard to believe. Uh, but actually we had um, one person that had attended uh, church here for a little while. And um, one day she stopped in to the office to visit the pastors. And she shared with us that she really didn't care for everything that the Bible had to say about God. And so um, she liked some of the things that the Bible said. But she liked some of the things that other religions said too. And so she took some of the things that she liked in the Bible and she took some things from another religion and and she made up her own religion. And she had actually typed it up in a manuscript and had copies for us. And most people don't go to that extreme of defining what type of God they worship and believe in. But rather you might hear someone say something like, well, I like to think of God being like this. I like to think of God being like Santa Claus. Or I like to think of God being like the tooth fairy. People redefine God to be something normally that serves them or their purpose better than the true God does. Or sometimes their description of their God sometimes begins with, well, I, I can't believe in a God that would allow blank, blank, blank to happen. I can't believe in a God that would allow babies to die. I can't believe in a God that will allow hurricanes to wipe out entire islands. Because they can't understand God and his purposes behind it. Therefore, he must not be the true God. In fact, I've, I've talked with people who, after having a, a bad experience with a, with a particular church... Um, and no longer, they no longer like being part of a local church. And they said things like, well, I don't think God cares if I'm serving or worshiping with other people. I've heard people who believe the health and prosperity gospel say things like, well, I believe in a God who wants me to be healthy and wealthy and wants me to have a lot of, of money and wants me to be rich. And of course, when that doesn't happen, sadly, they, they abandon their God Because in their thinking, he has failed them. So people think that they know better than the Bible and assume that they can define a a God that is better, more suitable to their lifestyle than the God of the Bible. And so people today commit idolatry by worshiping another God, by by redefining who God is, and thirdly, by giving the worship or service due to God to someone or something else. And we could give testimony tonight about the different things in our world that people often end up serving and worshiping instead of God. Uh, Many of us, it wouldn't take long of us to say, I I know that people in the world worship the, the body image. Our world, and often through social media, worships the human body. People spend way too much time at the gym or in front of the mirror or they use photo editing software to change what their body looks like before they post that image to social media, right? Uh, Some people worship work. Uh, Just like everything else that we talk about, there's nothing wrong with it. In fact, work is a good thing, but when it takes first place in our lives instead of God, ahead of God, it can quickly become an idol. Uh, Some people Worship their children. Some people, uh, what, what their children do, what, they, what, what people will purchase, what they will sacrifice in the name of making their children happy. Then how, how many parents allow their children to dress immodestly, to engage in terrible behavior, to skip church services or youth group events, all in the name of making their children happy? Some people worship pleasure. Uh, many, in our, many people in our world live for pleasure, whether it's pleasure that comes from playing sports, spending time with friends, video games, or even sexual pleasure. Uh, some people worship money. Some people find their security in money and what it can provide them. And the closer we get to the election, we see that some people worship politicians. and and political parties as though they will provide them with salvation. And we could go on and on about the different things and people that, that people worship in our world today. But the closer you look at the world around us, you see that we live in a state, we live in a nation, we live in a world that is full of idolaters. And just like the children of Israel who were surrounded by idolaters, We too are surrounded by idolaters, and we must fight every day to make sure that no one and nothing takes the place of God in our worship. And similar to Joshua's challenge to the people of Israel, we must challenge our fathers, we must challenge our mothers, we must challenge our families, we must as a church and collectively challenge each other to make sure to choose this day who we are going to serve. In, in verse 15, Joshua seats for the record what he and his family are going to do. They were going to serve the Lord. And notice that Joshua tells the people that they had to choose whom they were going to serve. No one, no one can choose for you. Just, just talk to any pastor who has done any counseling. Ask them if they can make choices for the people that they counsel. All oh, that they wish that they could. Ask any parent you know If they can make choices for their children, beyond maybe what they're going to have for dinner. No one can choose for another. I can't choose for you. You can't choose for your parents. You can't choose for your spouse. You can't choose for your your neighbor. You can't choose for your children, whom they're going to serve. Each of us must choose for ourselves who we will serve. And we're not going to take time to read through it all tonight. But if you, if you look forward and read verses 16 through 29, Joshua goes back and forth with the people. Serve the Lord. We will do it. But he goes back and forth, making sure that they know the seriousness of their commitment to serve God. And so back and forth they went, and the people didn't give up. They persisted that they would serve the Lord also. And it says in verse 31, which is very encouraging to the end of the story for the people of Israel, it says in verse 31, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua. And all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the, Lord had did, uh, that the Lord did for Israel. How wonderful is that? Everyone who knew Joshua and all that the Lord had done, they all served the Lord faithfully all the days of Joshua. But sadly, though, that's not the end of the story, is it? If you continue reading into the book of Judges, you know that God's people struggled with worshiping and serving idols the rest of history and, and up through today. So let me ask you, who, who is your master? Who or what do you serve? Who or what do you worship? I have two, two tests or two questions that might help you Evaluate your own life and the lives of those you know and love. And the first question is this. How, how do you respond to unanswered prayers? How do you respond when your hopes and dreams don't come to pass? If you pray to God regarding something, and I know many of us in here, we've, 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 uh, we've lived and served together here. We've had people that have gotten very sick. We've had people that we cared for and loved and we prayed for and they died. But how do you respond when God doesn't answer your prayers the way that you want him to? If you accept God's answer being no or something else, and you continue knowing knowing that uh, God's mind is will and and his will is better and greater than ours and 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 you're able to continue on with your life, well then, God is your God. However, if you pray and ask God for something or to do something and he doesn't answer it the way that you wanted and your life might as well be over, well then, most likely, that hope, that dream, that prayer request, that was your master and your God. Uh, An example of this is found for us in Jonah chapter 4. If you recall, Jonah, he goes and he he unwillingly goes to the people of Nineveh. And if you read about it, you understand why. Um, But he goes there, he shares the gospel, and they they repent and turn around, and he's upset at at it. He leaves the city, and he goes out east of the city, lays down, and God grows a plant for him that provides shade for Jonah, and, and Jonah loves the plant. He can't get enough of the plant until the next day when God sends a worm to kill the plant and sends, it says, a scorching east wind and it says the sun beat down on the head of Jonah. And how does Jonah react? If you're familiar with with that passage, well, Jonah said he was angry because of the plant dying, angry enough that he wanted to die. And sadly, I've known multiple people who who, when God didn't do what they wanted, whether it was to be married or in their marriage, God didn't do what he wanted, what they wanted done with their spouse, God didn't do re- what they wanted done regarding their children, God didn't do what they wanted regarding their work or even less significant things. Just like Jonah's reaction, the reaction was, Well, that's it. I might as well be dead. My, God, just take me now. If you're not going to do that for me. And far too many people who call themselves a Christian make God to be someone who should be accomplishing their will in this world and not his. A second question for you, or test. What is it that gets you most frustrated? Or the most depressed about yourself? Or on the flip side of that, what, what must you have to make you happy? See, false gods can set up non-biblical standards in our life, and when when we don't live up to those standards, well, then now we're not an acceptable person. For example, the example I gave before about body image. If if body image is your God, and you look in the mirror, and you're not happy with what you see, and that drives your frustration and depression and doubt about who you are and what you should be doing in life, well, that could very well be your God. If you see a neighbor or family member park their nice car, SUV, and, it's, and move into a new big house or whatever it might be, and now it, what you have doesn't match up and doesn't compare to what they have, and that drives great frustration for you, well, that's what's driving you, that's what you're serving. See, what drives you, what controls you, is your God. Joshua recognized the need for the people to choose to worship God among all the other gods in their world. Let us choose with Joshua to worship God alone today and every day. Let's pray and ask for his help to do just that. <coughs> Father, we recognize that we live in a world full of idols and that Satan has purposely put into into our world in front of us and our children our families all sorts of things that to distract us and take us away from serving and loving you and giving you first place in our lives. And so easily it is for us to be distracted and, and pulled away from worshiping you and keeping you first in our lives. And so we ask for your help as a as a church, as families as individuals, as fathers and mothers, that we would choose today and every day to worship you first, to keep you first in our lives, that all those other distractions might be kept in their right place, that nothing would keep us from worshiping you as you deserve. And we'll thank you and praise your name in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.